G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is our grand final preview edition. Oh, we're just hours away now from the 2020 Premiership being decided, albeit in a fairly different fashion to what we're used to. But uh, look, we've had a season. We're grateful for that. And boy, have we got a fantastic grand final on offer with two official heavyweights of the modern AFL era in Richmond and Geelong. It's pretty exciting stuff. As I say, very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. You excited, Finey? In a way, I am. Because, you know, I... (laughs) <laughs> I've always been a fan of that Richmond Grand Final of 1967. This bears no resemblance to it, but it does match up two teams that, for different reasons, are within touching distance of some greatness. I really believe that. Richmond, if they win this flag, unquestionably put themselves in the discussion for great football, you know, great football teams of all time three out of four premierships, you are flirting with greatness. And Geelong, because there are remnants of the 2011 team that has played in, is it every final series since then or bar one? Uh, 13 out of 14 since 2007. Yeah. Then a premiership to cap that off with Gary Ablett there, the whole, you know, for all four premierships. Wow, it just would be a magnificent story, wouldn't it? So we've got really two teams in very difficult circumstances. I think the fact Victorian teams have made the grand final is a feather in their cap. Yes, I am looking forward to it. Yeah, absolute uh, heavyweight status franked for both clubs, of course. Uh, If the Cats win, that'll make it four premierships uh, in the AFL era. Uh, which puts some level with West Coast behind only Hawthorne, who have five. And uh, the Tigers, three flags in four years, where you've got the Brisbane three-peat, the Hawthorne three-peat, but that would be the next best achievement since Hawthorne of 1988 to 91, who also won three flags in four years. So a bit of uh, football history awaiting whichever side emerges victorious. We've got a heap to talk about uh, with an extensive preview of the game. Uh, plenty of news and a bit of fun to finish it off. But uh, you talk about greatness, Viney. When you talk about greatness and eras uh, in terms of fast food, I can only think of one thing, and that's a delectable Andrews hamburger. Well, we know that here in Melbourne, the travel distance was extended from five kilometres to 25 kilometres last Sunday. Theoretically, that means five times as many people can now get to Andrew's Hamburgers. Of course, if you draw draw the 25-kilometre radius out from Andrew's, a lot of it encompasses Port Phillip Bay. But I've heard even the sea, the sea life would like a hamburger if they could. If you could put a, an Andrew's Hamburger on a hook, I reckon you'd be catching some pretty big fish. Well, I'll tell you what. You'd be catching me every time. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. It's, uh, I think, the burger to die for, but no, just the burger to enjoy. And I got a special recommendation, a bit of, of a kick up the backside the other day because I was talking to somebody and they said, hang on, hang on, hang on. Love your podcast. Always talk about Andrew's Hamburgers. I go there and get the best steak sandwich in Melbourne. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a menu to cover all tastes. 
Absolutely. And when you're talking about great legendary home renovators, I also can think of only one reputable, well-known by this podcast company. Who would I be thinking of? You know, when you think of, of great designs in Australia and great designers, was it um, an overseas chap, Utzon, I think, who designed the Sydney Opera House? He did. Um, Burley Griffin, did he design, well, somebody along those names designed Canberra? I thought he did a lake. But yeah, yeah okay. I thought that was a testimony <laughs> to him. Well, maybe with those legendary names will come the simple term House Spartels, West Point Properties. Do I need to say more? You know from our ads, if you're a regular listener, the mod cons. Rowan loves the idea of warmed floors for his cold tootsies. No, not for me, for the hobo that lives out the back in the corrugated iron shed. Okay. All right. We know that's you, Rowan, but that's okay. Um, your alter ego, long long nails, Howard Hughes-like. Bad you know. Rowan. The one that frequents Twitter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Twitter, row, Twitter Rowan needs warm, warmed floors. How about a floating staircase? I like it. Yep. yep. I'll tell you what you would like, though. You'd love the quality. You'd love the eye for detail and the personal touches. I think that's what both our great sponsors have in common. Personal pride in great products. West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. Uh, wonderful sponsors, wonderful audience. We've got a wonderful show coming up for you right now. Let's get into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Well, grand final week, always plenty of news around, but of course the uh, 2020 Brownlow medal has been run and won since we last spoke to you, Finey, and wow, what a tearaway winner was Lockie Neal. Absolutely expected, but uh, thoroughly deserving, wouldn't you agree? You know, it's a bad year to bring up... I think what a lot of people feel, and that is that it is a narrow competition because he was the best player this year. So there's absolutely no problem in saying Lockie Neal deserved that Brownlow. Yeah, Travis Boak, great season from him too to uh, finish runner-up. Uh, nothing to say that a veteran can't have a renaissance in the twilight of his career. What did you make of the coverage, by the way? Were you, was it Did it uh, hit the mark? I must say I was pleasantly surprised at the absence of uh, wags and red carpet. Yeah, it was actually nice. I, I mean, for us, you know, wags, <laughs> it's not part of football, but there are people on the periphery of um, football fanaticism who enjoy it, I think. So there was a little bit of that. I, I, I really thought that the front bar stole the show. They were that was a brilliant little segment with Graham Teasdale and and those Jack Hamilton memories were fantastic. So whoever recalled that and found that, that is brilliant research. Now, that is people putting time and effort and it's a combination of, of knowing something and then finding something, which I think is the behind-the-scenes work that makes the show brilliant. Actually, you know, for me, you know, you know, you know what the, the secret to that show is? Tell me. Well, it's put together by people independent of Channel 7. Oh, there you go. <laughs> really? It's their, their own production company? It is. But it, but did you enjoy that segment? Oh, it was great. I thought they should have hosted the whole show. <laughs> I thought that should have been the whole show. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't Graham Tuesday, good fun. That was great. No, that, was, that was very, very well done. The old footage was fantastic. Uh, no, well done, Lockie Neal. It's been an outstanding season by him, and he's a very, very likeable young chap too. So I think uh, a, a win very well received in the football world. Uh, just what just on that, Rowan, there was some controversy with Mark of the Year for Sam Walsh, not your traditional... Um, high-ride Specky, and there were a few of those this year. So uh, that courageous mark, what did you make of that as mark of the year? Uh, I didn't think any of the nominations were outstanding, to be perfectly honest. Was there a, one of the other nominations that was palpably better? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, there were a few decent rides, but is that why? Because it's a very un, very unfamiliar territory, taking a mark sort of in front of an oncoming pack. Yeah, well, it's, the, well, it's a Jonathan Brown, Nick Rewalt one, but it didn't have that sort of degree of danger about it. I thought they got the goal of the year wrong. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, it was all pretty interesting, wasn't it? I, I, I'm, I'm amazed, actually, that Patrick Cripps didn't win goal of the year. That, that was unbelievable. Or even Jack Nunes, uh, given the degree of difficulty and the pressure attached. But you know those things are popularly voted now, and therein may lie the problem, I feel. Yeah. I, you know, with Jack Nunes, great goal, don't get me wrong. Um, could you really separate that from Robbie Grace? Uh Man, no, probably not. No, probably not. It's a fair point. Actually, I think you're right. I think now I think about it, I, I was watching that game when, when Cripps kicked that goal. It was funny because I'd spent the previous five minutes talking about what an ordinary day he was having. And yep. literally before he took possession, he fumbled. And I go, oh, look, there he's fumbled again. And then he goes and does that. It was uh, it was amazing stuff. Anyway, um now, grand final week, plenty of uh, events tied up with that. Uh, you talked about controversy. It might be a, a minor controversy or a few people expressing dissatisfaction about the idea of Ash Barty presenting the Premiership Cup to Richmond if they win. Are you happy with that or not? No, no, that's wrong. Really? Okay. Yeah. Do we really want to get into celebrities presenting the trophy? Now, of course, they'll counter with the argument that the fact that they are out of Melbourne and with travel restrictions means that they have not been able to bestow that honour on a former champion, but surely they've got Neil Baum in town, um, even Brendan Gale. But Ash Barty, great, great Australian story, great to have an Australian at the top of the tree in women's tennis. But I don't think it's a track we want to go down, Rowan. Yeah, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it, to be honest. I mean, I think it might have been Matthew, our mate Matthew Richardson actually pointed out that, uh, you know, until relatively recently, the Cup was presented by the Governor of Victoria. So, you know, do you feel, did, uh, I'm trying to think, did John Nichols feel cheated because Sir Rowan Delacombe presented him the Premiership Cup? Tell me you remember Sir Rowan Delacombe because you share a first name with him. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's a great get. Um, who are the other governors? Was Winnikey a governor? Uh, he was. Uh, I think uh, Brian Murray. Uh, I think I remember that one because he presented one of Essendon's mid-80s Premiership Cups. Uh, yeah, beyond that, I'm struggling. Yeah. I mean, was that the Winnikey that played for Hawthorne? Uh, no, I think it was his dad. Okay, so there's a bit of a connection there. I well, I, I actually like the idea of the governor collecting, uh, presenting the cup because it it sort of has a touch of royalty about it, and I'd love somebody like a working class captain like John Nichols receiving the cup and saying, "Thank you, governor." No, I was I was about to do that, Jake. Except I was going to say. They let Channel Seven organise it, and they stuffed up. They grabbed someone off the cast of Minder instead. <laughs> Hello, Governor. Yeah. Oh, well. No, I don't think we need the Governor to present it. What a, <laughs> you know, the, do you know what the Governor's number plate is? <laughs> no. It's it's just a crown on a number plate. <laughs> it is. Oh, in is Victoria. it really? Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's in each, I don't know, in each state, but it's a Victorian number plate with a little picture of a crown on it. Can you name the current Victorian governor? Well, I know we had a, a lady governor recently. Yes, she's very distinguished. I've met her, as a matter of fact, a number Is of that times. our current governor? Correct. Linda Dessau. Who Linda actually, De what uh, a terrible thing that I didn't get it because I've actually met Linda as well, um, uh, Governor Dessau as well. Remember, you know, Stephen Peake, who I did quite a bit of radio with. I do. Um, now, Governor Dessau is an esteemed member of the legal fraternity. Yes, and was also on the AFL commission. And for some reason, um, uh, find Stephen Peake humorous and, no, well, he is funny, Stephen, 
And I used to umpire the annual lawyers. This was a great game, actually. The Barristers versus Solicitors football game at Victoria Park. Yes. And so when someone pays a free kick, they someone yells out, objection. <laughs> well, I've got some great stories from that game, including two years in a row where Stephen Jerika tore his hamstring. Oh, right. Um, but he's a barrister. It's funny, you know, there's quite a few ex footballers playing. You'd be surprised who they are. But Governor DeSau would hand out the trophy each year and um, uh, absolutely entertaining and wonderful woman, very warm and, and very funny. Well, good that you are reminded you who she actually was then. She's clearly lodged very firmly in your uh, memory bank. Yeah, I apologise. I should have known that. That is a poor, poor recall by me. But I'm very, well, obviously, being Victorian, she can't present it. But next year, let's get back to the governor. Okay. Maybe governor. I'm all for that. Let's get back to some news and stop talking drivel. Uh, One big news story during the week, of course, uh, former Carlton List manager Stephen Silvani did, uh, I quote, an explosive, unquote, interview. Uh, and uh, dropped a lobbed a couple of hand grenades in the direction of uh, Carlton CEO Kane Whittle. Did you see that one? Yes, I, I saw that. I think that interview was on SEN Row. Yeah. And the uh, his main complaint was that a or two complaints a that it drew his two sons into the discussion, which isn't fair on them. And also, as he put it, if Kane Little would have gone with what he had said to him privately he had no problems with being um well being basically fired from his position at Carlton but apparently what was said behind closed doors did not as Silvani said bear any resemblance to the public statement so he's very upset with unfortunately a famous name at Carlton Silvani how he was treated well, he was, was pretty miffed, I think, at the suggestion that uh, he might, because they knew he was going, quote, sabotage the trade period. So, um, look, I, I don't know Kane Whittle, but uh, I'd suggest that if you're dealing with a, a legend of a club, you'd need to be pretty careful if you're sort of accusing them of treachery, I would have thought, a little yeah. bit indelicate, perhaps. And, and Stephen Silvani also brought up the recruitment of Eddie Betts and the fact that as list manager, he had put a price on a value on Eddie Betts. And as he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that uh, Kane Little went over his head and obviously paid, allowed Betts to be paid more because he wanted to be popular in returning a favourite son to the club. So pretty messy stuff. Isn't it interesting how uh, some heavyweight clubs seem to have a recent history of um, executives interfering in football decisions? Hmm, might be something in that. Um, you don't want to add to that? <laughs> don't worry. Well, Fairly unsubtle allusion to another club. Well, Roe, obviously Essendon, and it does seem to be, and we've discussed this before, uh, a situation where clubs that have been historically very powerful, we know Essendon and Carlton share the record with 16 premierships each, uh, seem to have, unfortunately, too many too many chiefs, not enough Indians. Is that a fair expression for both those clubs? Uh, I think so. So lessons to be learned, but I guess they get learnt slower at clubs with, you know, fat cats in charge or people in charge that maybe it's interesting you know with Kane Little interesting appointment actually but with with people that aren't essentially um, experienced at running football clubs all right uh, well that's enough of that let's uh, we haven't talked trades uh, yet, and there's obviously heaps of news going on there uh, in player terms. Uh, no doubt the biggest announcement of uh, the week that GWS star Jeremy Cameron wants out, exploring his options under restricted free agency and Geelong being his uh, preferred destination. What a coup that would be for the Cats. Well, certainly 
would afford them a wonderful forward line for two or three seasons with Hawkins and Cameron, and then a succession plan for Tom Hawkins. But, I mean, Jeremy Cameron maybe hasn't fulfilled his full potential at GWS, but still a very handy player to throw into the forward line of a team that's about to play off for a premiership. Yes, uh, well, still a lot of water to go under the bridge there, but uh, these things tend to work out. Certainly thrown up the issue of free agency and whether that really has been um, uh, ended up having the impact it was intended to. It certainly seems to have helped stars get to powerful clubs rather than helping pretty good players get to clubs that really needed their services. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've got my... I've got my issues with it, I think. I don't think it's sort of going as it was planned to go. Watch this space, Rowan. I might be ranting about it a little later. Okay. Uh, the other big name and another spearhead too, Ben Brown, of course, uh, North Melbourne, perhaps surprisingly, some of us think, uh, telling him to explore his options. And he has explored one of those options in the past couple of days uh, with Melbourne. And that would be, I reckon, that would be a coup for them as well. Very sorely needed uh, some uh, key forwards by the Demons. Sorely being the operative word there. They've met with him virtually, but there'll be no move to Melbourne until he completes a, a medical. So not saying that he has necessarily agreed to go to Melbourne, but Melbourne have said that they do need to have a look at him because there is a question about his knee. And a couple of other names, uh, Adelaide, uh, Brad Crouch. Uh, he has, uh, I think he's keen to go to your club, Finey, and that would be a bit of a coup for them. And uh, Kyle Hardigan uh, has also indicated he wants out from Adelaide. A bit more surprised by that one, given how long he's been there. And I would have thought he was a fairly established, reasonably safe member of that uh, defensive group. Yeah, but he is a Victorian and he did get a, he's 28 and he got a three-year deal from Hawthorne. So that is confirmed because he's an unrestricted free agent. So Kyle Hardigan will play for Hawthorne for the next three years as they continue to sort of shore up their defensive posts with foreign investment, for want of a better term. They've indicated in, or that's the game they've played in recent years from Lake to Frawley to Hardigan. But, uh, yeah, he's a good stopper, Kyle Hardigan. Not necessarily a front-line recruit, but a good pick-up for the Hawks. And Brad Crouch, we know St Kilda indicated at the end of the season, almost as the final siren went against the Tigers, that they were looking to bolster their midfield. And being a restricted free agent, the interest will come as to whether or not... It depends on the length and the amount of the contract. So... Apparently, it's five years with some triggers and around 700,000. So that puts it in the, puts Crouch in the sort of um, firing line for Adelaide getting a first round pick, which means that they get it immediately after their first pick, which would give Adelaide the first two picks in the upcoming draft. Well, if they get a if they get a youngster who's got some behavioural issues, you could call it a first round prick. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what St Gilda's picked up, given that Crouch won't be able to play for the first two games of the season because of behavioural issues. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I did let that slip. Freudian? Oh, probably not, given what Adelaide did to St Kilda in nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, so. Crouch to St Kilda, a good pickup, especially if it's for free. Uh, any others on the agenda that have uh, crossed your trade desk? Uh, yeah, look, there's a couple of interesting plays being made. Essendon, and apparently this is quite serious, are putting a big money offer to a bulldog who's still got two years to run on his contract, and that is Josh Dunkley. Now, it's unlikely that they'd be able to prize Josh Dunkley out of the Bulldogs' hands. But, again, it shows that, <laughs> to me, Essendon are an interesting team when it comes to recruiting. They want to play hardball on the way out. And for players on the way in, 
they are, well, I think a bit fanciful. In fact, our two clubs are going head-to-head for a young giant star. Interesting choice here for Jai Caldwell. Uh, St Kilda offer him probably a more immediate opportunity to play finals. Essendon offer him a more immediate opportunity to play senior football because St Kilda's bolstered their midfield. I would have thought Essendon's the better pick professionally for Coldwell, who has been told if he goes to Essendon, he slots straight into the midfield. Well, I reckon he certainly would. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I won't say too much there. Yeah, look, it uh, depends what you're looking for in a career. But, um, uh, yeah, no, he could certainly desperately needed by the Don's midfield depth, a real issue, and some pace and some class and some commitment as well. Um, and uh, I suspect he's got those qualities in abundance. He's, he's a pretty talented kid. Let's um, wrap this segment up. Uh, grand final week final. We all know how different it is in Melbourne town where we reside. Uh, grand final day itself, it would have been weird enough had it be a day game. But uh, being a night game, 7.30 start, all the rituals have been thrown out the window. Of course, social distancing measures still in operation. It's it's going to be weird. I'm just... I'm desperately thinking about what I'm going to do in the hours leading up to the game. I've got no idea, but uh, what, what's your take on that? Well, talk, you know, first of all, talk about weird. There's no grand final in Melbourne. There's almost no Melbourne yet tomorrow. And that's from our recording time on a Thursday is a public holiday in Melbourne. So are you going, oh, into, yeah. are you going into the city to watch the phantom Grand final parade? <laughs> well, I can now because I can go 25 kilometres, but uh, I don't know. I've, forgot, I've forgotten how to get to the city, I think. <laughs> yeah. it's, you, you could take the Yarra, couldn't you? <laughs> uh, no, well, I, I could take the freeway. It'd be pretty free of traffic, I think. Oh, look, it's all a bit, it's all a bit despairing. But you were, you were telling me off air the uh, Victorian police still very... Uh, resolutely cracking down on gatherings of too many people on the day. Well, look, I, I get a sense that one of the reasons that uh, the more draconian of the lockdown measures have been kept, at least until the start of November, is because we are in this period, and maybe even Melbourne Cup will come under this umbrella ultimately, of big gatherings of people this time of the year, especially on grand final day. And specifically, Daniel Andrews has said no grand final parties. He doesn't want, after what has been months of lockdown and sacrifice by Melbournians in particular, all of it to come a cropper because we are having huge parties on grand final day or night. So to that end, the police, Victorian police, have promised a continued strong enforcement of that law. And to do it, they are going to have air coverage and that means helicopters and drones to basically peer into your backyard or into your, you know, through the windows and find out whether you're having a party. I, I don't know whether George Orwell predicted this. He, I guess he, you know, he wrote 1984. It could have been 2020. You needed, um, you, you didn't need to be too worried about the future, to imagine a future like this where, you know, big brother's looking in through the back window. But it is a bit disturbing, isn't it? Uh, it is, it is. And there was also the rather slipshod PR disaster that was the announcement about uh, owners and connections of horses being allowed in uh, to Mooney Valley for the uh, running of the Cox Plate, a decision which was rescinded within hours after a fierce backlash yep. on social media, which poor old Marty Pakula, I think, um, uh, was a little bit chastened by that one. Um, and uh, the, just while we're talking social media, I see uh, that well-known activist, political activist, Rebecca Judd, has been fronting up again. She uh, took an Instagram post of herself wearing a free Melbourne T-shirt, which uh, I think produced endless suggestions on social media, most of which involve people getting the T-shirt 
and having stenciled underneath the words Free Melbourne of Rebecca Judd. What a pain in the ass she's become, Fine. Um, it's funny, you know, political comment through various forms of social media is available to everybody and, I mean, yourself included. But one thing, if you are going to enter into that world and you know that there's going to be stuff coming back, be well-versed and uh, have a little depth of understanding because if all you can come up with is a T-shirt and not much in response, you're really not providing much of an argument and you're a fair target for those who disagree with you. Yes, I think uh, there's a little bit of tone deafness uh, going on in the world of Beck Judd. Never mind. Uh, all right, there's our news for our grand final preview edition, but there is the most important game of the season to talk about, and we're going to do that right now. On Footyology, previews with Punch. The 2020 AFL Grand Final takes place Saturday evening at 7.30pm Eastern Daylight Saving Time. That will be, of course, uh, Brisbane time, 6.30. At the Gabba, massive, massive game this. Two very old members of the competition uh, with storied histories both. Uh, here's a bit of history for you. These two teams have met 197 times, of which Geelong have won 104, Richmond 90, and there have been three draws. Finals, they have met 11 times in finals. Very lopsided count this one. Richmond have won nine of those, and Geelong just two, those two being the 1931 grand final and an absolute shellacking in, of the Tigers in the 1995 preliminary final. 1931, the Cats won that flag by 20 points and an epic game, a favourite of yours, finding 1967, in which the Tigers prevailed by nine points. Recent finals history, well, Richmond beat Geelong by 51 points in the 2017 qualifying final, propelling them to that drought-breaking premiership. And last year, again, a pretty tight preliminary final in which Richmond still prevailed by 19 points. They've definitely had the better of this matchup in recent times. Richmond have won five of the last six. But in the modern era, it's the Cats who overall have still been dominant. They had an amazing run of 20 wins out of 21 against Richmond between 2001 and 2017, and prior to that, another run of 17 wins from 18 meetings between 1986 and 1996. There's a bit of history for you to give a, a little bit of context. Uh, what about this time, Fine? Well, I love the I love the history. Uh, first of all, you know that I love 1967, great grand final. Um, 1931. It was a 20-point win to the Cats, as you pointed out. There are brothers on both sides, Les Splinter Hardiman and Peter Hardiman for the Cats and a couple of strings for Richmond. I guess like this week, this grand final, they both had key full forwards that were very important, skinny Titus for the Tigers and George Maloney for the Cats, a 100-goal kicker. And finally, they both had players, I think, with great names representative of their status in football. Geelong being the country team, had a player called Milton Lamb. So that, I think, is suitable. But my favourite player was a guy that went around for Richmond, Fred Hefner, who obviously didn't have the nickname Hugh because he was too... Young, Jack Dyer played in that game. And Richmond had a star, you know, that they obviously have dusted Martin now, but they had a, a champion Martin back then, first name Martin, the great Martin Bolger. So a bit of a historic look back. This time, well, key players will, I think, in history be remembered as fondly as names like Dyer and Red Chicky for Geelong. And that, I, like, I like the fact that Richmond had uh, a Hefner and a Bulger 
Uh, and I couldn't help but think what the equivalent of Playboy was in 1931, Um, Gentlemen's Quarterly. <laughs> okay. The the um, no, they had the, they they had women taking off their overcoats. Yeah, <laughs> the hosiery ads in Women's Day or Women's Weekly. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. <laughs> you know what? They were probably a lot less innocent than we think they were. By the way, uh, speaking so, of, speaking of which, I've got, I've got to throw this in. I don't suppose you've read the story I wrote for Footyology about uh, missing out on my 50th grand final, but. I always come back to the Helen D'Amico 1982 and going with my two mates. And uh, on the way home, I wanted to talk about the game. And all they were interested in was talking about Helen D'Amico and how she had run towards us from the outer wing right towards where we were standing in the northern stand. What a day that was. Yeah. It's a really interesting story, actually, the Helen D'Amico story, but maybe one for another day. I think so. so. So famous names, really, uh, and I think that's part of the great allure for this grand final. Ablett's last game, Gary Ablett. So we're talking about, you know, an incredibly successful career as the son of one of the greatest, for many people, the greatest player to ever ever play the game, Gary Ablett Sr. So... For the time being, at least, we come to the end of an incredibly famous family era. Uh, there's there's great subplots all over this game. Yeah. You've got Ablett in his last game. You've got Dangerfield, a fantastic career he's had, never even played in a grand final. You've got the prospect of Dustin Martin uh, with a third Norm Smith medal, which would make him the only triple Norm Smith medalist. And dare I say it, with three Norm Smith medals of Brownlow and three because uh, I reckon if he's won it, his side's won three premiership medallions, he would have to start figuring in greatest of all time discussions as well, I think. Uh, Chris that's, Scott- a great, that's a great point, Rowan. Mm. It, it's because Dustin Martin has been... Oh, how, how can I put this? Because on the field, he's nothing but a, a, a gentleman and a, an absolute true ball player, really. Mm. But I guess there is an overall persona from his earlier parts of his career that maybe precluded some people considering him as a greatest of all time. But you are spot on. Are we watching the career of the greatest footballer of all time? It's, it's, it's possible. And you know what really franks that discussion makes it, to me, a sensible one is... You talk to anybody and say, if Richmond wins this game, who do you think will be the Norm Smith medalist? And it's almost impossible to go past Dustin Martin. Now, you're a bloody good footballer if people think you're a special to win a Norm Smith medal. Yeah, well, I had a look at the odds. I think he was 450. And, uh, I mean, I can't remember other Norm Smith markets, but surely there's never been a shorter-priced favourite to win one than him. He's just a, he's a phenomenal player. Let's talk about um, let's talk about the history, and I think sometimes you can talk about past meetings of clubs, and it's not necessarily that relevant. I think that's not the case this time because it was a, a really recent meeting. It was round seventeen, the second last home and away game. It was a game played at Metricon Stadium. Does that make a difference? Probably not a lot, but maybe a little. But it was absolutely a uh, convincing win to the Tigers. And in fact, the margin belied how convincing it was. It was 26 points in the end, seven goals, 15, 57, defeating the Cats' poultry scoreline, 4, 7, 31. What makes that stand out even more is that come three-quarter time, the Tigers led five goals, 13, to just one goal, five. So 18 scores to six by the last change and three of Geelong's four goals for the evening come coming with the game absolutely decided. That evening, Jack Rewalk kicked four for the Tigers and singles to Castagna, Lynch and Rioli. Two to Radigalia for the Cats, who uh, you'd be almost certain isn't going to be part of it this time. One to Close, he won't be part of it either. And Hawkins. Um, the interesting, I think one thing you can really... 
used as a guide finding is that it's a it's a clash of two philosophies really and uh, a lot of people have said this but it's spot on it is Richmond chaos versus Geelong control and uh, yes uh, if you're a get smart fan that should ring a few bells but even in that game last time um, it was actually Geelong who won many of the statistical categories the inside 50s that night was only 40 to 42 the Tigers way Geelong doubled them for clearances. It was 32-16. Centre bounce clearances, 10-2 the Cats way. Geelong won contested ball. They won uncontested ball pretty handsomely. But here's two significant stats the Tigers did win, Finey. Oh, actually, first, before I mention that, the better players on the evening, well, Tom Stewart was terrific for the Cats in defence. He ended up with 25 disposals. Great game from Cam Guthrie as well, 23 for him. Dangerfield, very good, 19 for him. Uh, for the Tigers, Dusty, probably their best player again on the evening, or behind Jack Rewalt's four goals. He had 19. Shea Bolton had 18 touches. Liam Baker, 17. The absentees that evening, this is significant. And in fact, you can talk about them. I just wanted to give you these two stats to mull over. The marks inside 50. 14 to Richmond, just seven to Geelong. Bounces, running bounces, just five to the Cats, 17 to the Tigers, which seems to underscore that theory about Richmond wanting to keep the ball alive and moving. Geelong trying to slow that ball movement down by playing a very slow, steady and deliberate game. But uh, do you want me to run through the absentees, finally, and then you talk about them? Yeah, sure. Well, missing that evening for the Tigers was Asbury, Edwards and Prestia. So three pretty pivotal players. Uh, missing for the Cats, though, and I was unaware of this uh, and or had forgotten this until I looked it up before, but missing that evening, Selwood, Rowan, Ablett, Stanley and, and you might think this is a, a addendum, but Simpson who has come into that side and really given them something, I think, in the last couple of games. So um, the roll call of absentees fairly significant. You bet it's significant. When you consider the impact Gary Ablett had on the game against Brisbane, and he's got every right, every chance to write a fairy tale ending to a stellar career, I want to go through a couple of major points for me. First, let's talk about the venue. And recent history has Richmond really holding sway, holding court over the Cats. That has predominantly been at the MCG, obviously. And that last game was at Metricon. Will that translate to the Gabba? In other words, does Richmond own Geelong wherever they play? or? can Geelong point to the fact that they have had probably the three three of the most commanding, impressive wins at the Gabba, a fourth if you throw the Brisbane game in. I speak of that week where they beat fellow finalists at that stage, fellow top four teams in, and not have even been in the top four to start that week, St Kilda and Port Adelaide. Their annihilation of Collingwood in the final and their very impressive dispatching of home team Brisbane, all at the Gabba. So, yes, Richmond do hold sway over the Cats, but Geelong have absolutely flourished at the Gabba this season. Balance that out as you see fit. Now, for me, the big call here is, as you say, chaos versus control heavy possession, heavy retention by Geelong versus forward impetus, moving the ball forward by whatever means by Richmond. And here, I think a night grand final, greasy predicted conditions, maybe not storms, but um, hot, steamy at the least, rain most likely, certainly plays into Richmond's style of football far more than Geelong. And to me, the alarm bells ring when you read out the statistics from that comprehensive defeat at Metricon. If Geelong can't win the game, 
with basically more of the ball in better conditions, how can they beat the Tigers in greasy conditions at night at the Gabba? And that's my main concern, Rowan. Yeah, and it's uh, absolutely justified. How they can do it, I think how they can do it or how they must do it, my memory of that game is uh, they, they tried to, they were obsessive about controlling the football. I think Geelong really needs to take a few more risks. Now, we've seen that the Cats can actually play attacking footy with the best of them. I mean, they've had some wonderful bursts of football, that seven-goal third quarter, I think that came against uh, Brisbane in the home and away rounds, not the preliminary final. But they have that capacity. I think they run into difficulty when not only do they try and over-possess the ball, but more so they overly try and put the handbrake on the speed of ball movement. I think Geelong will be a much better chance, not if it abandons the control philosophy altogether, but it just puts a higher priority on quick ball movement. So if, for example, a Stewart marks on the half-back line, don't spend 20 seconds looking around for the perfect option. If it's not there, back yourself. Go for the 75-25 kick. Because I think Geelong needs to create a bit more run of its own. I think the Tigers are such a good pressure team that uh, the Cats last time, they started to panic when they couldn't see the options there. And a lot of that sort of implied pressure or inferred pressure. And I think Richmond exerts that pressure and causes turnovers so well that sides begin to panic. Uh, I think they have to be prepared to push the button or pull the trigger, if you like, a little bit more the Cats in this game to be a chance and find a better balance of a controlled style of game, but also on occasions being prepared to chance their arm and back their run through the middle because they have got it. We've seen uh, how good Guthrie can be running the football. We've seen how good Parfit can be running the football. Menegola, he's not quick, but he runs with the ball. Geelong have players that can do this and they don't have the sort of chaotic, frenetic ball movement that Richmond does, but they can play a quicker game. I would be very surprised if this week Chris Scott hasn't made a point of saying that, that they have to strike a better balance between the sort of game that that has come to stereotype them, but finding a higher gear in which they catch Richmond on the hop with that ball movement, similarly to how Richmond can catch other teams on the hop. What do you think of that theory? Yeah, look, I agree. I think it's the only way that they can actually win the game because to try and play that same game that was so effective against Collingwood with almost 100 more marks, keepings off. First of all, they're not going to be teaching Richmond anything they don't know. You know, Damien Hardwick can say, when it comes to coaching like that, I am that man. Remember when Richmond were very much in a formative stage under Damien Hardwick and they took on, (laughs) it's surprising to say this, the competition leaders, Fremantle. Mm. They went over to Perth and that's exactly the game that Damien Hardwick had them play to upset the apple cart and record a famous victory. It was keepings off, not dissimilar to the style that Geelong play. That does not work in a grand final, will not work in a grand final, barely would work in a night game anyhow against Richmond, let alone one in greasy conditions. But they Geelong do have, as you say, the, the strong bodies and the goal-kicking power to make the transition into a more fluid team. My problem is that most of that body strength and that fit comes midfield and forward of centre. My worry is that that back line is still quite large, not as quick as what they will be lining up against and very much reliant on moving the ball by foot, Hawthorne-esque, from deep in the back line, out of trouble. And I'm not sure that the helter-skelter type of football that might be required to win this game can be played by a backline of 
Buse, Colin Jasny, Henry, O'Connor, Blitzav, if he is back there, uh, marshaled by the great Tom Stewart. And I love Tom Stewart. But I just think that that is where that type of football will find them out. All right. Uh, just one final quick one. We, we talk a lot about the key forwards of either side, Hawkins uh, for the Cats, Lynch and Rewalt for the Tigers. But like we've said, uh, spearheads don't tend to play huge parts in grand finals for whatever reason. It's a, it's a chaotic, tough game with a lot of ball at ground level. I think uh, the Cats are going to be in enormous trouble if the likes of Bolton and Rioli have particularly good games. Um, vice versa, I think uh, Richmond could find itself in trouble if a guy like Parfit or a guy like Myers bobs up and has a good game. So there are a couple of sort of lesser names to keep your eyes on. We need to tip Finey. I'll go first. Look, I, I've said this before. I tipped them pre-season, saw no reason to jump off them, even when they weren't playing well. They've proved me right again. They've come good. They're playing their best footy at the best time of the season. They've got a full lineup to choose from. Their stars are playing good footy. I love, don't get me wrong, I, I love Geelong. I love the way they play footy and I'd be wrapped for them to win. But I've got enormous respect for what Richmond's done over the last four years. It's been an incredible turnaround. It really has. And I think we'll look back on it and say it was one of the most remarkable transformations of a club football history has seen particularly if they cap it off with the third flag in four years this Saturday night. I think they're going to do that, not without a struggle. I think this will be low scoring and I think it'll be tight. I'm tipping Richmond by 12 points. What say you? You know what? I think that the modern way that football is played has brought up a dynamic that I was not familiar with in my first 30 years of following football. And that is domination of one club over another. Maybe it's because of styles, self-belief. I'm not quite sure, but certainly in the past, yes, top teams would have a great run over weak teams. But now we really have teams that are both evenly matched, seemingly with ladder positions or relatively evenly matched, still having strong runs against other teams. And I... I cannot get over the fact that in recent times Richmond has seemingly owned Geelong and to turn that around in a grand final, a step too far for me, Richmond by 13 uh, I should have asked also or well, I will ask you now for a Norm Smith medalist Actually, you know logic says Dusty but I've got a player that I think was brilliant all season. Incredibly, for me, overlooked, at least for a squad position in the All-Australian. I'm going to go for a player who could be a decisive match winner in Shy Bolton. Okay. Yeah, I, I absolutely get that. I am going for Dustin Martin. Uh, the runs are on the board. I reckon he's going to be the first man to win three Norm Smith medals. There you go. We agree on our premiership tip. Uh, do we agree with our rants? Are they even on the same planet? Let's find out. On Footyology, the rant of. Okay, interesting week. Uh, been a bit of a struggle on some fronts, I'll be honest. And I've got a rant of that nature to go into the grand final, finally. Can you give me a grand final counting? I can indeed. Three, two, ah! I'm pissed off with grand final week, Finey. It was always going to happen, being a Melbourneian, but I'm just not trusting these Queenslanders to get it right. I've always had my doubts, and they were confirmed last Sunday night with that virtual Brownlow medal when Lockie Neal had the thing wrapped up by about round five, and we still had to suffer through hours of endless patter. Was that Queensland's fault? Well, you would have thought they could have come up with someone better to present Neil with the medal than a bloody mannequin. Although, to be fair, it did have a bit more to say in doing so than Dusty Martin when he gave the medal to Tom Mitchell in 2018. But there's time-honoured traditions that go with this week that I just don't think Queensland 
has the knowledge or subtlety to pull off. How's that grand final parade going to go on Friday, for instance? In Melbourne, you get the greats of the game. You get a cavalcade which ends up at the mighty MCG, the mecca of all things sport. I'm not sure what Queensland's got planned, but I've just got this horrific vision of a couple of metre maids dancing around at SeaWorld with inflatable busts of Joe Bielke-Peterson, Russ Hins, and that big Kev guy with the loud shirts with the Aussie flag on them. But what about when the game time finally arrives? Usually you'll see plenty of cutaways to distinguished international visitors and celebrities. Are we going to get it caught a little bit short on that front? Last night, finally, I kept having this shocking nightmare that they couldn't fill the VIP seats at the Gabba. So they did this last-minute call-out and ended up with Fiona McDonald from It's a Knockout and Pauline Hanson. It was a disaster. Fiona couldn't work out why players weren't going through an obstacle course of wacky-shaped inflatables while someone was pelting them with pickled hard-boiled eggs. And bloody Hanson kept whinging about handouts when she got to the entry gate and saw people being given little flags in team colours to wave. It got worse when the game actually started and poor old Gil McLaughlin got stuck next to her having to answer her shrill cries of, please explain, every five seconds over a contentious umpire's call because she had no idea of the rules. Then they did the presentation ceremony. Ash Barty couldn't present the cup as planned because she'd spent so much time on Channel 7 screens this final series that a security bloke thought she was part of the commentary team and stopped her getting out there. All they could find was King Wally Lewis, who just made some tasteless joke about hookers, and they did the whole ceremony from a replica big pineapple instead of a premiership dais. This was going to be my 50th grand final in a row, Fidey. I've been to every single one since 1973. And now not only do I not get to be there, in my place instead is seemingly every banana bender whoever flicked the TV over to the footy for five seconds and made some disparaging remark about aerial ping pong. I'm starting to warm to the idea of that mannequin who gave the brown load to Lockie. At least it had the grace to shut up and let us Melburnians grieve the loss of something so big with a bit of dignity. Maybe Queensland could do something right and all of us a favour and at least draft the mannequin onto the Channel 7 commentary team in time for the call of the game. That was a ripper. I like that. That was very good. Uh, well, you know, when, when all else is lost, resort to a few Queensland cliches from the 1970s. Who's to say we're stuck in a time war? <laughs> I'm sure yours is much better than mine. I'll count you in. Three, two, one, rant. Sorry for those who want a humorous end to the program. I'm going serious. One word stands out compromised. That's right. This competition has been compromised by free agency. Let me explain. The problem is that free agency is simply affording top players to top teams, running in the face of what was the only competition in the world that had a workable salary cap and a draft system that genuinely work towards sharing the spoils. The theory of every team winning once in 18 years may not have been working out that way in practice, but genuinely, teams at the bottom of the AFL ladder had a way up through the draft and the fact that the salary cap made sure that no teams could mega-spend their way to eras of greatness. We do not want competitions like most soccer competitions around the globe that see domination by one, two, or at the most, three or four teams. It's uninteresting, and without relegation, it's basically disconnecting fans from a genuine experience of supporting their team through meaningful games. It's ruined by free agency. Just have a look at who wants to go where now. Joe Danaher leaving Essendon for Brisbane, who finished third. Of course, the big one, Jeremy Cameron, leaving GWS, wants to go to Geelong, playing off for a grand final. Even my own Saints, finishing fifth, get the benefit of Brad Crouch, who wants to leave Adelaide. There's no more proof uh, required as to why this is running counter in the face 
of what is a great system with draft and salary cap than the first final played this year. Tom Lynch joined the Tigers after they won a flag. Pretty lucky to get the best forward in the land almost, nominating you after winning a premiership. What happened in the first final this year? No Tom Lynch and Brisbane were able to defeat the Tigers. And probably a window into what life would have been like without Tom Lynch for Richmond. Yes, a very good team, but good enough to win another flag the year after, oh, two years later and be in the line for another one this year? Me think not. Unfortunately, it needs a close rework, a close look, because the last thing we want is a lopsided competition where lower teams are losing their very best to the teams that are playing off for a grand final. Oh, very uh, unusually serious for you, Fanny, but very, very good, comprehensive, articulate take on that. Uh, it, it was certainly something that was introduced um, not to pilfer the big names away from clubs to already established clubs, but I guess that second tier of players reward them for service and maybe point them in the direction of clubs that need of their services. Um, and it's interesting, the numbers of free agents have actually declined. The first year of free agency, and I'm reading this from uh, a terrific comprehensive look at the whole concept that Footyology's own Michelangelo Rucci has undertaken. It's up on the website now on the homepage, some great stats on free agency and talking to some of the key uh, players in the whole system. But the first year of free agency in 2012, there were 10 free agents. Um, that's aside from delisted free agents. Last year, there were only four. So we're, we're getting fewer names and they're tending to be bigger names and they're going predominantly to already established clubs. That is actually not going to even up the competition at all, but have the reverse effect. And you're spot on, Finey. I, think I do you... have a fix. Yeah, what is it? I mean, I've, I've sort of voiced this before and people who've thought through it, a lot of people do like it. A club has to identify how much they're taking a free agent uh, and are going to pay them because that's how the compensation's worked out. So that is very transparent. So let's use the example of Jeremy Cameron, $800,000, five years at Geelong. That's what they pay them. That's what Geelong will pay in financial terms. But I want a scale going from the premiers down to the bottom team and a scale that starts at 200% and ends at 50% and works down incrementally. So around the middle of the table is about 100%. And that is the amount that would be allotted to the club's salary cap. Basically, if Geelong won the flag this year, they can get Cameron, but he will appear in their salary cap at $1.6 million. And I think that would be fair, not for the duration of the entire contract, for the first two years. So for the first two years, Geelong would have to devote $1.6 million of their salary cap to Cameron. Yes, it's possible, but they would have to shed players to do so. At the other end of the scale, Adelaide, who need help, could get Cameron at $800,000 a year with only $400,000 in their salary cap. So basically, they could offer a player like Cameron $1.2 million a year, knowing that for the first couple of years to help them up the ladder, it's only going to cost them 600000 in the salary cap. That way, top teams, yes, they can attract the stars, but they're going to have to bleed to do so. At the moment, they get the big joke is that Jeremy Cameron could well go to Geelong and they don't have to pay anything for him in trade terms and he just slots in. I think this is a more accountable way. I, I quite like it. I, I do. I know you've talked about that before. My one reservation would be: is it tying financial fortunes? Um, is it tying them unequivocally to uh, ladder fortunes? Because if a wealthy club happens to finish down the bottom of the ladder one year, uh, is it giving them too much of a leg up financially and the extra capacity to become powerful on field by utilising that wealth? I mean, that theory, the theory of mine only works under the assumption that all clubs can pay all of their salary cap every year. Like, 
the wealth of a club doesn't come into wage paying, which at the moment is the case because the AFL guarantees that all clubs at least have even footing in that regard. No club has failed to um, reach their commitments salary cap wise because they're poor. The AFL pays that bill. So it only works if clubs can afford it. Well, it's, it's certainly an interesting concept, one well worthy of discussion, and we may continue to do that over the next few weeks. That is the show, everyone. Uh, quick thank you to our wonderful sponsors, Forney. However you get there, get there if you're in the circle of love. 25 Ks now, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Ooh, I could go one of their burgers, Andrew's Hamburgers. And thank you, Nick Spartels and West Point Properties for your wonderful support and, more importantly, your wonderful eye for detail when it comes to building a home. And thank you, everyone out there, for your wonderful support, which you continue to offer us uh, by listening to this. You can also help us out by uh, contributing via the ACAST uh, support page here where you're listening to this very show or at our Patreon page. Uh, you'll find the footyology details there. And for five US dollars per month, you get full access to enormous amounts of content. We're going to be going right through the off season, of course, with the trade stuff, but not just that, plenty of other topics to talk about movies, music, film, society, you name it. We talk about it and we've got some great writers on board too. So uh, please uh, help support this operation, continue to thrive and hopefully you'll all continue to thrive too. Uh, good luck to the grand final supporters of both Richmond and Geelong. Let's all hope we get a great game to watch and to dissect in detail, which we will do when we return on Sunday with our grand final review episode. And don't forget our grand final edition of our Twitter and Facebook live stream, Footyology Final Siren. We're going to be on after the grand final 10.30pm Saturday evening after the grand final has been won or lost. We will dissect it in detail. Take your questions and comments. Always good fun. Make sure you join us for that one as well. Have a great grand final, everyone. We'll talk to you later. 